Indeed, a full Sunday this morning. We thank the mission team and we'll be on our knees for you, men and women, for the past, for the next few weeks. And we look forward to good report. Thank you, Missy, for your testimony. For We praise God for God's salvation of your soul and for him leading you down here to us. And it's been a joy just seeing you grow and look forward to God wills many years of ministry together. And thank you, Brother Mike, for praying for us and reading the scriptures for us. Well, got a few things to share before we get into our word this morning. Um, this summer, we have a special treat of Pastor Lou Priolo coming and speaking at our fall retreat. Now, who is Lou, right? That's, what he, that's the way we, he wants to be called, Lou. So I'm going to call him Lou when he gets here. But how do we find out about him? Well, two years ago, when we found out Elizabeth... Sorin was pregnant with Elizabeth. Um, I purposed in my heart that I need to read some books on parenting to prepare myself for this responsibility. And a, a pastor that I respect highly recommended The Heart of Anger by, by Lou Priolo. And I read this book cover to cover. And I, was, I, was, I learned so much from it. My heart was so instructed that I read it again. And you could tell by the dog ears and many highlights and the, the notes that I've written that I, I cherish this book, I value this book so much, because it taught me not just how to shepherd my child's heart, but really how to shepherd my own heart with the Word of God. And you know, an uh, author is good, because next thing I did is on, I went to Amazon.com and looked up Lou Priolo to see what else he had written. And the next book I picked up was Teach Them Diligently, a book on, on using Scripture to teach others and it's addressed to children, but it's just in all ministry. And his appendix is worth the price of the book itself. Appendix A, scriptural text for child training. Scriptural text for child training. When your child is quarreling, he has verses that you can use. James 4.1. What causes that quarrel? It's because of what's in your heart. Envy, jealousy, hatred. When you see selfishness, Philippians 2, 3, 4, do nothing out of selfishness or vain conceit. I mean, that appendix alone, I believe, is worth the price of the book. Appendix B, um, fallacy of humanism. He goes through the worldly education system and shows a fallacy in light of the scriptures. And finally, Appendix E, if you're a wife, you've got to get this book. He ends it with a word to wives, how wives can help their husbands to lead the family spiritually. How wives can assist their husbands in teaching the children the Word of God. Tremendously blessed. And then last year, um, for our Pillars Marriage Fellowship, all the husbands got together and we read cover to cover, The Complete Husband. And all of us were tremendously um, um, rebuked and corrected. And he had all these questions directed towards husbands that were very challenging. You know, husbands, if you're wise, you'll buy this book for yourself next week at the book table. Wives, if your husbands don't, you buy him one <laughs> and read it together. So these books, all three books, and I think one extra one, he's got a, next, a new book that's come out, will be available next week at our book table. Please consider purchasing one, reading them to prepare your heart for the summer's retreat. One more announcement. Um, one of the commands of Christ to all new believers is to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28. 
that was practiced by the New Testament church in the book of Acts, that was repeated in the epistles by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. And that is, that is a reflection of God's work in a person's heart. And if you profess to be a Christian, if you trusted in Christ, and there are some of you who've recently trusted in Christ, then we will have a baptism teaching on July 27th. Mark that on your calendar. And we hope to have a baptism service at our retreat where we will obey the command that Christ has given to, to believers. So July 27th, our, our FOF membership facilitator, Tom Furco, will be giving a baptism teaching. Please uh, mark that if you haven't been baptized. And if you know someone in the body who hasn't been, please relay that information to you as well. Well, one last announcement. Um, in preparing for today's study, thoughts on, on younger men from Titus chapter 2, I was so blessed by a book written by an eminent pastor in the past century named John Charles Ryle. Now, how many of you guys have heard of Pastor Ryle? I mean, this man, I mean, in my, in my study of the Gospel of John, he is the first commentary I go to. I mean, his, his heart, his devotional approach to the text, his love for God and his word, it is just awesome. And I read this book years ago. I think I've read it almost once, once a year. And just preparing for Titus 2, I read it again. And I was, I mean, it is pearls. It is just what Missy was saying. It is treasure. It's like, this is like um, Krispy Kreme stock, right? This is, I don't know, what's the hot stock now? I don't know. This is like property in Newport Beach. That's how precious this book is. And I was thinking to myself, man, if someone had given this book to me when I was 18... I mean, if someone, if I had read this book when I was 19, I'd be a different man today. And, I mean, I read it over and over. I was so blessed. I was so, I was so blessed that I found it on the Internet. It's public domain. The copyright expired. It was over 100 years ago. And I emailed it to Reuben. And it costs, I think, four cents a copy, 30 pages. So 79 cents to copy it. And we have it available today after service. And we'll sell it to you for a dollar. I thought about giving it away, but then you're not going to read it, right? If it's free, right? So we're going to charge you a dollar <laughs> so that you would have some investment in, in, in this book. And I encourage each man to read this book. And you will see, I, I'll be quoting it in, my, in our study, and you will see how precious it is. If you know, if you have brothers, if you have sons, if you have relatives who are men, I'd encourage buying this book for them. And even if you're a woman, buying this book for yourself and looking at what Pastor Ra has to say about and towards young men. Well, we're continuing our study in Titus chapter 2. And let me start by taking you guys back a few years to when we planted our church, February 14th, 1999. When we began our church plant, our highest commitment was to the Word of God. By that time, I had been in ministry for over 10 years. And my life and mindset was dominated by worldly ideas. I was not driven by the scriptures. I did not have a high view of God's word. I was driven by pragmatism. What works? What people liked? What would draw a crowd? I was driven by mysticism. Man-centered and worldly wisdom had been pillars of my ministry. And by the grace of God, somehow, God led me to study the Bible. 
a novel thought for someone in ministry. The first time I studied the Bible and discovered its truths, I learned the Word of God for the first time, and it became just the, the sanctifying truth in my life, the most precious thing that, that, that helped me to live my life to the glory of God, lead my family to the glory of God, and lead our church. And it became for me and for Bob and all the leaders of Cornerstone a non-negotiable. We said, look, we'll give in, we'll hedge, we'll compromise, we might on other things, but never the Word of God. And Bob and I, we talked to several times. If our church shrank down to our two families, right, we will not compromise on Scripture. We will study the Word, come to conclusions, and submit to the conclusions wherever it might lead us. We will proclaim the Word faithfully to our utmost ability, in season and out of season, and no matter the result, God help us, we will strive to be faithful to the Word of God. You know, after a few years, we noticed something, though. We began to notice that right doctrine didn't guarantee right life. We began to see that there were many believers who could rattle off doctrinal, our doctrinal statement. Everything they learned in FOF, they knew it to a T. And yet, there was a disconnect between Scripture and their lives. And we realized, right doctrine is not enough. High view of God, knowing Scripture is just a start. The challenge of the Christian life is not knowing truth, it's obeying it. It's living it out. That's where it's difficult, that's where it's a challenge. And we realize that a believer has to have not only right doctrine, but he or she must have the mindset to do whatever it takes to obey the Word of God. To consider his life, her life worth nothing. If only if he or she might be faithful to the task that God has given him or her. The word of God. You know, and now, several years after that, we believe by the grace of God, cornerstone we have right doctrine. By the grace of God, we're growing in right theology. And we are making incremental progress in right life. That, and I see this in our church, that believers are really seriously striving to live out the Christian faith in, in the real world. As a father, as a mother, as a brother or sister, son, daughter, as an employer, as an employee. Right? In all these ways we're striving. But by our study in Titus chapter 2, I've come to realize even that is not enough. Brothers and sisters... Right life is not the goal of the Christian life. Right life is not the end of right doctrine. We are not called to create here a a Christian utopian society in Cornerstone where everybody has nice families, you know, real good family relationships and everybody's working and everybody's striving to live for God, and everybody's in ministry, and in here, in this wall, we have this great Christian community, Cornerstone Country Club. That's not the purpose of right doctrine. We've come to realize that the reason we are called to have right life is for the purpose of right evangelism. For the purpose of right evangelism. So that we might reach the laws of the gospel of Christ. And that is true throughout Titus chapter 2. 
Verse 3, older, verse 3, after older men, older women, why? So that their lives might bring power and integrity to the gospel we preach. The Word of God. Verse 5, that the Word of God may not be reviled. And then verse, verse 8, that we might adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. That is why it is so important that believers have right lives. There is only one life that fits sound doctrine. And for us, the gospel is at stake. Our lives either bring integrity to the gospel, brings power to the gospel, or we diminish the integrity, diminish the truthfulness of the gospel by our lives. So brothers and sisters, right doctrine is just a start. Right life is not the end. It is a means to evangelism. And therefore, if we are not evangelizing in our circle of influence, it undermines all that we stand for as a church. Right doctrine Right life, if we're not passionately giving the gospel to those around us, what is the purpose? And you know what? We see this in the life of Christ. We see this exact thing in the life of Christ. In Matthew 26, 36-39, we're all familiar with this passage. It is Thursday evening, late at night. Our Lord takes Peter, James, and John to a garden near Gethsemane, the Olive Press, on the Mount of Olives. And he goes there and he takes his three disciples to pray with him because his soul is so desperate and so troubled that he's at the point of death. And he goes to the Father three times and he prays this, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will but as you will. Now, what is this cup that Christ is asking to be passed from Him? It is not the physical torture of the cross. It is the cup of God's wrath. Because our Lord will bear the sins of the world on the cross, He will be separated from the Father. God would pour forth His anger, His wrath, His judgment on the cross. And on that, at, on that moment, God the Father will turn His face and sever that father-son relationship. That is why, that's why I repeat so often, on the cross, Jesus didn't call God my Father. The only time in the Gospels, He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father forsook His Son because of our sins. And Christ dreaded that. And Christ said, is there any other way? So that tells us that if it was just us, He wouldn't have died on the cross. He would have said, you know, God, is there any other way? Because my will is, you know, I love the church. I love the elect. I love these believers, but I love you more. I don't want to be separate from you. Is there any other way? And Christ went to the cross For one reason, because it was the will of God. Not my will, but your will be done. I was talking to a guy that I discipled like 10 years ago. We had a reunion a few few months ago. And, you know, it was like a reunion, so it was not an environment to get into heavy doctrinal discussion. But I wanted to talk to him about theology and doctrine to kind of undo the damage that I did 10 years ago. (laughs) And we had about five minutes to talk about doctrine and theology. And he said, James... Summarize for me your doctrinal position. In five minutes, tell me what you believe. And I said, Daniel, 
my doctrine, all that I believe about Scripture is summarized in this one statement, Jesus died for God. Jesus didn't die for you, Jesus died for God. What do you mean? And I pointed to Matthew 26. That Jesus went to the cross for the glory of the Father. Because He loved God. Because He wanted to please the Father. Our Lord was not a pragmatist. He was not man-centered. Our Lord had right doctrine. He had right theology. He had a high view of God. His desire wasn't to change the world. His desire was solely to glorify God and to do His will. That is why He died. Jesus died for God. John 5.19 I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can do only what He sees His Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. John 8.29 I always do what pleases Him. John 17.4 I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. A simple illustration might be after church we go out to lunch and I pay for your lunch. Right? Because there are many verses in the Bible that says Jesus died for us. Jesus gave His life for us. Gave His life for the church. Let's say I paid for you. You ordered debt to the restaurant five bucks and I paid for you. And you were saying, wow, thanks. And I go, yeah, you know, I love you. But the reason I really did it is because I love God. Right? God wasn't... If God didn't say I love you or love one another, I wouldn't do that for you. Right? I wouldn't. If God wasn't here, if God wasn't true, I wouldn't. That's what's happening with Christ. Right? You know that old song, nails in his hands, nails in his feet. They tell me how much he loves me. That's wrong. Nails in his hands, nails in his feet. They tell me how much he loves God. The cross reveals Jesus' love for God. God loved the world. Right? So as we follow Christ, as we imitate Christ, what is our hearts? What is right theology? It's God-centered life. Living for the glory of God. Striving to do His will. So Jesus had right doctrine. And then we see right life. What happens to Christ after Gethsemane? He is arrested. He is tormented by the Roman soldiers. There are only two apostolic witnesses to this torture. And that's John and Peter. John 18, 15-16. John, because he had uh, some kind of position in the Jewish community, was allowed into the uh, high priest's uh, domain to watch this persecution. And he uh, talked to the soldiers to let Peter in. John 18, 15-16. And Peter saw the Lord Jesus Christ being punished, being spat at, being slapped, being tormented and tortured and mocked. And he describes this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He describes almost a blow-by-blow account of what Christ endured and how he responded when he was punished. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When they were punching him, he didn't lie. Verse 23, chapter 2 of 1 Peter, when he was reviled, when he was blasphemed, when he was maligned, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. And here we see the right life of Christ. Above reproach. The enemy was punishing him and there nothing evil to say about him. Because he was meek as a lamb that was led to the slaughter. Entrusting himself to God the Father. We have right doctrine. We have right life. 
And then we have right evangelism on the foot of the cross, chapter 27, verse 54, when the centurion, who is the centurion? He is the, the commander in charge of a hundred men. And because he's at the foot of the cross, most likely he is the one who oversaw the whole arrest, the persecution, the torment, all the way to the crucifixion. He was in charge of it all. That was his duty. When he saw what took place, he was filled with awe. And what does he say? Truly, this was the Son of God. He heard the gospel through Christ. He saw his life. How he responded to his enemies. And that brought integrity and power to the gospel, resulting in this man, this centurion, this hardened soldier, to be converted and to follow Christ. Pastor Dykstra taught from this last week, First Peter 2.12. Where does Peter get this from? I believe he saw this at the cross. He saw this for himself with Christ. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That was Christ. He was surrounded by Gentiles. He, lived, he conducted himself in an honorable way. And when God visited that centurion, because of Christ's doctrine and life, that man was saved. Again, I believe as a church... There is no threat of heresy being taught from our, our pulpit or our teachers. And I believe that I see a genuine seriousness for believers to, to have right lives. But we need to complete that circle, according to Titus 2, with evangelism, with missions. We do not want Cornerstone Country Club, a utopian Christian community where we enjoy the Christian life. We soak it all in. Because that is not the will of God. That is what is found in Titus 2. The gospel is at stake. Our lives, the gospel is at stake. The world judges not our theology. The world judges not our doctrine. The world judges our lives. And our lives either bring integrity to the gospel or it brings reproach to the gospel. And now Paul has addressed older men. Paul has addressed older women. He has talked to younger women. And now he's coming to the most difficult group. Right. The group that is the furthest away from right doctrine and right life. Can I have an amen? Right. The greatest challenge as a pastor is to get younger men to have right doctrine and right life and right evangelism. Let me read to you a lengthy, it's from Thoughts for Young Men by J.C. Rao. It's lengthy, but it's, it's worth reading. You know, I almost, I was tempted to just read the whole book up here. <laughs> I was. I mean, that's how good it is. This sermon should be preached, not just read, but some man ought to stand up and, and read and declare these words. But I stopped myself, I'm going to read a portion of it. I, this is what J.C. Rao says, I speak without respect of persons. I say it of all, rich or poor, gentle or rough, educated or uneducated, in the city or in the country, it makes no difference. I shudder to think how few young men are led by the Spirit of God. How few are on that narrow road which leads to life. 
How few are setting their affections on things above. How few young men are taking up the cross and following Christ. I say all this with sorrow, but I believe in God's sight that I am saying nothing more than the truth. Young men, you form a large and most important class in the population of this country. But where and in what condition are your souls? Regardless of where we turn for an answer, the report will be one the same. Let us ask any faithful minister of the gospel and note what he will tell us. How many unmarried young men can he remember who have come to the Lord's Supper? Who are the most backward about the doctrines of salvation? The most irregular about Sunday services? The most difficult to draw to weekly Bible studies and prayer meetings? The most inattentive to whatever is being preached? Which part of his congregation fills him with the most anxiety? Who in his flock are the hardest to manage? Who require the most frequent warnings and rebukes? Who causes him the greatest uneasiness and sorrow? Who keeps him the most constantly in fear for their souls and seem the most helpless? Depend on it. His answer will always be young men. Let us ask the parents in any country throughout this world and see what they will generally say. Who in their families give them the most pain and trouble? Who need the most watchfulness and most often provoke and disappoint them? Who are the first to be led astray from what is right and the last to remember cautions and good advice? Who are the most difficult to keep in order and limits? Who most frequently break out into open sin, disgrace the name they bear, make their friends unhappy, embitter their relatives, and cause them, to, cause them to die with sorrow in their hearts. Depend on it. The answer will be young men. Let us ask the judges and police officers and note what will be their reply. Who goes to the nightclubs and bars the most? Who make up street gangs? who are most often arrested for drunkenness, disturbing the peace, fighting, stealing, assaults, and the likes, who fills the jails and the penitentiaries and detention homes, who are the class which requires the most incessant watching and looking after, depend on it, you will get the same answer, younger men. That is so true. Whether in the church or in the world, the furthest from right doctrine, right life, and right evangelism are younger men. So this is an important passage for us. The gospel is at stake. Now before we jump right into verse 6, we need to consider what is a man. Right? Now before you can be a godly man, you have to be a man first, right? How can a boy become a godly man? Well, hold off on the godliness, right? Let's look at just being a man first. What is biblical masculinity? What is it to be a man instead of a boy? Right? I'm afraid that the young men in our society have lost the map. They don't know where they are. They don't know who they are. They don't know where they're going. I was like that in Russia when I went there by myself. They dropped me off at Penza. Okay, James, you live here. The church is over here. Here's the map. My first day there, I would not let go of that map if that meant my life. Because without that map, I don't know where I am. I don't know where I'm going. I am lost. That's the predicament of most younger men. 
They don't know what, what, what it is to be a man. They don't know who they are. They don't know where they're going. And the world gives them all the wrong ideas. Depraved ideas about what is truly manly have affected men and women throughout the ages. Right? I mean, early Greek culture taught men to look down upon their wives as mere childbearers. That, that you're not to instruct your wives. All they're good for is to have children, raise them, and to keep their home. They were not allowed in the dinner table or in the assembly. In the Roman culture, women were more, no more than a legal way to bear children. At the whim of the husband, he could ask for a divorce and she would have to leave. Today, wrong views of masculinity abound. Wrong ideas. Right? Ask the guy out the street, what does it mean to be a man? He will say, well, having a lot of money. Driving an expensive car. Having nice clothes. Sexual prowess. You're not a man until you lose your virginity. Right? A man is someone who can you know, pull down a 12, 12 beers and not be drunk. Right? He can win at those drinking games. A man is someone who's, who's a seasoned in the world. Has tattoos. Has piercings. Works out. Remember that cartoon a long time ago? The skinny guy gets his sand kicked in his face and the girl leaves him. So what does he do? He starts working out and taking vitamins. And now he's a man because he's got muscles. Wrong ideas abound concerning what masculinity is. Not only that, our society is filled with wrong examples of what a man is. From movies to television, from pop stars to sports figures, masculinity is exemplified by our popular culture that is anything but scriptural. Right? If you were to take a survey... Man, go to yahoo.com and post, who is the most manly, uh, popular figure in America today? What answers will we get? Right? I asked that Stephen Top slipped over last night, I asked him the question this morning. And the first answer was, guess who? Right? Arnold, right? <laughs> That's all we didn't know. Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? The Terminator, right? He keeps coming back. I was thinking of, how about Joe Montana? Man, what a masculine name, Right? Kirk is shaking his head no. But I mean, just the name alone sounds masculine. Hi, my name is Joe Montana. Man, I mean, I like that kind of name. How about The Rock? Right? Some of you guys might think that. How about, I don't know, I thought maybe Bruce Willis? Right? I don't know why. <laughs> I, I, I bet, though, if we were to take a survey from the, from the world at large, we would have quite a percentage saying um, a former heavyweight champion of the world, right? Mike Tyson. Right? At one time, the most feared man in boxing. People avoided him. No one wanted to get in the ring with him because, I mean, he was such a brute within the ropes. Well, they had a recent interview with him and his ex-wife, Robin Givens, and this is what he says. He, he explains his deplorable behavior as a husband. I just wanted to live a reckless life. I thought no one could be cha- a champion better than I could. Robin Givens remembered one time he got very mad and he swung a phone at me and hit my face. I felt the pain before it hit me. Just choking me. He was, I was vomiting. He was kicking me. Things like that. Tyson said, you think that I was a grown man with all these emotional abilities. But it's not true. Not only did he physically abuse her, 
He emotionally abused her with lies and infidelity. Tyson said, a lot of times I just hate myself sometimes. I think about some of the things I've done to people and some of the ways I've hurt people. I was a pig. I have never been faithful to anyone I've ever met in my life. And it, was e- it wasn't easy for Robin to live with me either. I'm a dirty dog down deep, said Mike Tyson. And here is externally one of the, str- one of the strongest men in the world. And yet, is he a, a model of masculinity? Wrong examples. When I look upon the families, I see many wrong examples of passive fathers. Not only are there wrong examples in the world, wrong examples in the, in the home. Our fathers are uninvolved. Our fathers are out playing golf. They're vegging on TV with a beer. They're not involved with the family. They're not shepherding the wife. They're not teaching the kids. They're not leading the family to holiness. Their commitment to God and His church and His word is, is weak at best. I mean, we are immersed with wrong ideas and wrong examples. Where can we turn to? Where can we turn to as a church to discover biblical masculinity? Well, who else? But Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect man. He is the God-man portrayed in the scriptures as the only perfect man. 1 Peter 2, 21 and 22. He is the perfect picture of what all men ought to be striving after. He exemplifies, he models true masculinity. In no way would anyone say that Christ was unmanly. For the rest of our time... This morning, let me just highlight to you five marks of biblical masculinity seen in the life of Christ. I want, it, I want us to catch biblical masculinity. Not just read it, but see it in Christ's life. Five marks of biblical manliness, biblical masculinity. Eternal mindset, love, courageousness, conscientiousness, and humility. I repeat that. Eternal mindset, loving, courageousness, conscientiousness, and humility. First mark of biblical manhood seen in Christ is that he had an eternal mindset. That he did the will and work of the Father. So many men are apt to give priority to work. Give priority to worldly success and worldly priorities and worldly desires. They don't have time for God. They don't have energy for God. They don't have room for God in their lives and their hearts, but not Christ. He said in John 4:34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and finish His work. And the disciples went to the town when they were in Samaria to look for food. They were hungry. You know when you get hungry, you can't think about anything else. All you want is food. I mean, you'll drive, you'll walk, you'll run, you'll ride a bike to get some food. Christ, His all-consuming passion that dominated His thoughts was doing the will of God. John 8.29, I always do what pleases Him. That was in His heart, pleasing God. Secondly, our Lord was filled with the Spirit of God, was filled with the Word of God. Young men are filled with worldly wisdom, unbiblical thinking. You ask them about their philosophy of life and they quote like rap songs to you, right? That's happened to me. 
Right? They call Hey, I've heard that. I know that song. Right? Uh, you live based upon like lyrics of a song. Right? You know, they pick up almost successories and they live by that. Right? You know, positive thinking. Or they watch an Oprah episode and they, that's their life goal. Well, not Christ. Right? When he taught the word of God in John 7, the scholars, the rabbis, the scribes of Israel were astonished. They were amazed at his teaching. Matthew 22:33, the crowds were astonished at the truth of his words, at his teaching. He was, was wise, filled with the word of God. Luke 20:26, 20, lawyers, right? There's some aspiring lawyers in our church. Lawyers went to Christ trying to trap him in his words. And even lawyers were taken back. They were not able to trap him. They were blown away by his wisdom according to the word of God. Third mark that he had an internal mindset is that he immersed himself with giving the gospel to this world. Mark 1, 1, 14. As soon as John went to prison, he went to Galilee to proclaim the gospel. John was gone. Okay, I'm there. Mark 5, 17. It is a Sabbath. What is he doing? Proclaiming the gospel. Why? Because my father is, at, is always at work. Therefore, I too am working. John 5, 17. John 4, 6. Our Lord makes that long trek through Samaria, from Jerusalem to Galilee. Six hour high noon. He's tired. He's hungry. He's thirsty. What does he do? He sees a Samaritan woman. He proclaims the gospel. Our Lord immersed himself with the gospel ministry. What are most men immersing themselves with today? They're immersing immersing themselves with temporary pleasures, seeking to be entertained. Their greatest concern in life is boredom. Like, that's like a fear. What do I do? I'm I'm bored. What am I going to do tomorrow? I have nothing to do. They immerse themselves in all kinds of hobbies, sports, video games, media interests, seeking to fill their lives with these temporal things. I remember one guy years ago, he's not at our church. He was in his late 20s living with his parents. I visited his home and I could not believe what I saw. He had a video game console set up where he could play video games with one hand while laying down in his bed. And that's what he filled his life with. He made it so that he could be the most comfortable position so he can play so long and he will not get tired and he will not cramp or anything and you can have a high score. Uh, forget about being a godly man, brother. Forget about, think about being a man first. Right? Even boys don't do that. Well, not Christ. He had an eternal mindset. And finally, therefore, he lived a holy and obedient life. He lived to obey God. His life wasn't marred by sin. 1 Peter 2.22, there was no sin in his life. Young men wrongly think that, oh, I'm going to toy with sin and obey God later. Oh, count on a late repentance. That is so foolish. You know, Rao says, yes, the thief in the cross was, was saved. And so there is hope for a late repentance. But only one thief was saved. So that we will not presume upon a late repentance. When we are young, that is when we need to be holy. When we are young, that is when we need to be fostering godly habits. This is what Ryle says. Sin is the mother of all sorrow. 
And no sin appears to give a man so much misery and pain as the sins of his youth. Right. No sin caused such misery and pain in the sins of one's youth. What did David pray? Oh Lord, remember not the sins of what? My youth. The foolish acts he did. The time he wasted, the mistakes he made, the bad company he kept, the harm he did himself, his family, his church, the chances of happiness he threw away, the openings of usefulness he neglected, all these things that often embittered the conscience of an old man throw a gloom on the evening of his days, and they fill the later hours of his life with self-reproach and shame, end quote. Nothing is more sorrowful than sinfulness of youth. Rao says, young men, young men, I wish you did not know the comfort of a conscience not burdened with a long list of youthful sins. They are the wounds that pierce the deepest. Be merciful to yourselves. Seek the Lord early so that you will be spared a bitter tear in the end. So first mark of biblical masculinity is eternal mindset. Secondly, Christ was a man of love, of true love. Men are by nature selfish. Richard Baxter wrote, Selfishness is the radical, positive sin of the soul from which all other sins flow. Later on, Baxter writes, Man's fall was essentially his turning from God to himself. Therefore, selfishness is all positive sin in one. Priola writes in Complete Husband, There is no practical synonym for the concept of sin than selfishness. Selfishness is the best synonym for sin. And most men, all men, we're apt to selfishness. Think about ourselves, our needs, our concerns, but not Christ. He was a man who truly loved others. When he saw the needs of others, he was not self-focused. He was not callous, hard-hearted to the needs of others. No, he saw to meet the needs of others. Matthew twenty twenty-eight, Christ came not to be served. He is God, but He came to serve. Matthew 4.23, He healed every disease and sickness among the people. Matthew 9.36, when He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them. He felt it in His loins. He loved them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Let's go to the third attitude, third mark of biblical masculinity. First was eternal mindset. Second is love. Third is, and I love this, it's courageousness, confidence. It is zeal. It is understanding that the God-given role of a man is to, to protect, provide, and lead. As men, we are to be physical protectors, and therefore we need to be courageous. Douglas Wilson writes this story in, in um, Future Men. I love this story. I think I'm going to tell this at, at the church. Teddy Roosevelt was at Harvard and he was teaching Sunday school his freshman year at Harvard at a local church. A young boy came. He had a black eye. And Roosevelt asked him, what happened? Well, this, this bully was pinching my, do- my sister. 
So I fought him. And that's how I got my black eye. You know what Roosevelt did? He said, well done, son, and gave him a dollar. <laughs> if it happens to you, you fight again, I'll give you another dollar. A dollar was a lot of money back then. When the, when the elders found out, they dismissed Teddy Roosevelt, asked him to leave the church. Poor decision. That is right. Men, we need to be courageous. We need to be zealous. We need to be leaders. And that's what Christ did. He led. He led men. He made decisions. He needed 12 disciples. He went to the mountainside to pray. And he didn't say, oh, give me a few weeks. Oh, I don't know what should I do. Peter's a good guy. Well, that guy over there is a nice guy too. He didn't waffle back and forth. Okay, we'll have 13. All right, 16. All right, back down to three. He didn't do that. He said, 12, and these are my disciples. He came back with a decision and he stood with it. He was not passive. He did not wait for someone. He was courageous. And he confronted sin when necessary. We've been studying that in the Gospel of John, right? In the temple courts, you know, a block away from where Sanhedrin, the, the Supreme Court of Israel was holding their sessions. He stood there against all these Israelites and he said, you do not know God. You're, you're children of the devil. You're not disciples of Moses. You're disciples of Pharaoh. They tried to kill him and he stood his ground. The courage of Christ. Matthew 23, he called the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, every name, every name in the book, accusing them of hypocrisy, calling them out of their duplicity. Our Lord was a man of courage. He was not wishy-washy. He was not, not afraid. And that's the, the third mark of biblical masculinity. Fourth mark of biblical masculinity in Christ is conscientiousness. What does this mean? He was faithful to his conscience. God gave him a task and he finished it. He was responsible. He was not a flake. He made a promise and he kept it. He was faithful to his word. John 17, 4, Christ said, I give you glory by what? Completing the work that you gave me to do. And John 19.30, he said, it is finished. I, I finished it. He was diligent. He finished what he started. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and endured to the end. He was not lazy. He was not a quitter. Young men, we need to learn to finish what we start. We need to learn to be responsible. To put away our extended adolescence of being lazy and playing games. And be faithful to God. And final one was humility. True man is exemplified by Christ. He's humble. He's not prideful. Our Lord says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, I am gentle and humble in heart. He humbled himself. He had every right to be God. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. But he humbled himself as a man. Not just a man, but as a slave. Not just as a slave. Death on a cross. Like a common criminal. Well, I'll just close by asking you guys this. You know the men. Before we get to Titus 2, 6 through 8 about godly men, are you a man today? Are you half a man? Are you two-thirds of a man? Go through this list and consider, do you have an eternal mindset? What occupies your heart? What do you talk about? What consumes your thoughts? What do you spend your time, your energy on? 
That tells you what mindset you have, whether you have a temporal mindset or eternal mindset. Are you filling your life with entertainment, with self-fulfilling pursuits? Or are you filling your life with right doctrine, right life, and right evangelism? You know, young man, are you seeking to love others? To not be selfish? To consider others before you consider yourselves? Or are you just thinking about one person and yourself and yourself alone? Are you a man of courage? Are you bold for Christ? Are you bold for the gospel? You know, husbands, are you willing at any moment to die for your wife? Right? Physically give your life and say, I'll die to protect my wife. Do you have that courage? Are you a conscientious man? Right? When you have unfinished work, you can't rest. You can't be entertained. Because your conscience bothers you. I made a promise. I, I'm not keeping it. How can I rest and play when I, I have a responsibility I'm not faithful to? Are you a conscientious man? And finally, are you a humble man? As Christ was and is humble. Father, as I preach this sermon as a young man, I am preaching to myself. Because as I see my life in light of the life of Christ, I am in the valley surrounded by high mountains.